Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and it'll just be me today. Caroline's not going to be with us today. Our guest today is Hannah Lynn. And Lynn's one of my favorite names because that's my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> and Hannah is a multi-award winning novelist, publishing her first book, Amendments, a dark dystopian speculative fiction novel in 2015. Her second book, The Afterlife of Walter Augustus, a contemporary fiction novel with a supernatural twist, went on to win the 2018 Kindle Storyteller Award and the Independent Publishers Gold Medal Award for Best Adult Ebook. The book that we're talking about today is her first historical fiction novel, Athena's Child, which was also a 2020 gold medalist at the Independent Publishers Award. And Hannah lives in the UK. And after graduating from university, she spent 15 years teaching physics, first in the UK and then in Thailand, Malaysia, Austria, and Jordan. And it was during this time, inspired by the imaginations of the young children the young people she taught, she began writing short stories for children and later adult fiction. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Hannah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me here. And I should have asked, do you like, is it Hannah or Hannah? Because I've heard of Hannah. 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 All it's right. Hannah. Yes. <laughs> okay. So how much do you use your physics background in, in your writing? <laughs> uh, not very much. <laughs> there have been times. There have been times. Um, yeah, in, in the afterlife of Walter and also in um, in amendments where I, I was using it. Um, but recently, no, that that my physics background doesn't appear quite so much. <laughs> Not so in much the... in Athena's Child. <laughs> no. <laughs> so Badly. Athena's Child is a retelling of the myth of Medusa. Yes. yes. Primarily. It's... And what drew you to want to tell this ancient story? Um, so I was drawn to it because I think we all know Medusa. We all know the Gorgon who turned men to stone, this evil, vicious um, beast. And there's another side to that story. There is the story of how she became that monster. Um, and I wanted to share that. I wanted to make that sort of known to sort of switch the narrative on her from being a monster to a far more rounded victim, mortal at a time, you know, wronged woman. Um, yeah, so as soon as as soon as I had started, I I was enthralled and I, I had to try and do her story justice. So is that part of the official story of Medusa? It, it is one of the later versions. One of the, okay. So it's taken from one of the later versions, yes. Yeah. So there are, it, it is a minefield when you are writing <laughs> mythology because there are so many different versions of stories because of how myths were told and how they were adapted. Um, and so there are, there are versions where she was born the Gorgon monster, but there's also the version which I followed here where um, she was not born. She was a monster. She was actually born human um, and was cursed in this state. So how far back does the story of Medusa 
ago. Do you can you can, do we know when the original version of it was written? Or I imagine oh. it was probably oral to begin with. Yes, I have to say, like, <laughs> it's bad that I don't. I'm very much not a classicist. So I, I come at these stories very much from a writer's perspective. Um, so Athena's Child, um, I'm not even sure what number novel it was of mine. At least at least 10 in, I want to say. I'm looking to the side of my husband here because he sometimes ah. knows that. He just said 15 at me. Um, so I hadn't done any historical fiction before then, but I was... Um, very much going from a storyteller's uh, approach for it. Um, so whilst I uh, I think I now have a, a greater than average knowledge of mythology, I am definitely not up there with the uh, those who studied uh, classics. And I have some wonderful uh, friends um, who I've made since beginning this journey who I call upon whenever I need help <laughs> with things like this. Well, starting with your first book, which was um amendments was that yes and yes. okay so dystopian fiction yeah and then well the second one was the afterlife of walter augusta okay and how would you describe that book so that was that was contemporary fiction um about a man stuck in the afterlife and a woman who bakes cakes <laughs> <laughs> okay and then you've written a lot of um, a lot of books for kids, right? For young people? No, no, no. Okay. They're, no, uh, all mine are, are adult fiction. Um, so I I've written okay. a series, okay. um, contemporary fiction, some rom com in there. Um, I've got a few series going, um, a peas and carrots series. A sweet Shop of Second Chance is one of my series. <laughs> Lonely Hearts Book Club. See, I assumed that um, Peas and Carrots was a, was for kids, but it's not. Yes. Yeah, no, it's not. Not. No. Okay. Okay. No. Humorous family drama. Yes. And um, this, yeah. So the Wildflower Lock series, the Lonely Hearts Book Club series, the Hollyberry Sweet Shop series. So these all sound pretty light. Yes. And fun. Yes. And Athena's Child is not. not. And your dystopian novel was not. So. No. <laughs> so I find that in doing that, it's it's like a release. So I love doing the Greek mythology books. I'm, I'm working on my fourth one, fifth, fifth now. I've just got the proofs of my fourth one from my publishers today, which is amazing. It's beautiful. Um, but they are quite draining. Mm. they're quite draining to write at they're draining in the content you know you're dealing with heavy heavy themes and also in terms of the research like I said there there is it's a minefield of research um and it takes a long time to sort of dig out work out what what tale I'm telling on here um and what I find is like when I'm getting a bit like this this feels too much I'm like I'll write something light-hearted I'll write a rom-com. And so in doing it like that, it's allowed me to sort of really keep my work rate high. Um, I don't get frustrated with my work very often because I'm just like, I'll leave it till I'm in a better place to deal with it and I will write with this book. And you know what it's like when you're not thinking about something directly, the ideas often come to you anyway. You just need to take that break. Um, 
so yeah I've been doing that for a few years now and I find that, that that's a method that that works for me you must be writing really fast <laughs> I, I mean I'm, for for those listening this you know I'm we're on Skype and I'm looking at Hannah and she is young she is young <laughs> and and oh, um, and I'm looking at her webpage with is Hannah Lynn author.com h-a-n-n-a-h-l-y-n-n author.com and I think she's got dozens of books on here <laughs> yes uh yes yes and dozens more that aren't on there that oh. have been the sort of well not quite made it or different genres and pen names and things yes I I am always writing mm-hmm. um I'm always writing. I'm lucky that I do it full time now. It's uh, two and a half years ago we started doing this full time. Um, and yeah, I don't really stop. So it's one of those, <laughs> I wake up, I write, I try and squeeze in all the hours I can, I write. I have such a backlog of ideas that I want to get written. And the only way I know I can get onto the next book is by finishing the last book. Wow. Um, so yeah. now, are you a um, a pantser? Do you know what not that? Not anymore. Not anymore. I used to be. <laughs> I used to be, and it used to take a very long time to write my books. Um, now, because I have you know deadlines to meet and so on, I am plotting. I at least know where the end is. Okay. I say. Um, but yeah, I much prefer having an outline. It's it's a lot quicker if I spend a few days to work out that outline and, and then I sit and write. It's it's a lot quicker and also means that not so much goes in the trash bin when I'm editing it. That's um, whereas good I point. find when I pants it, you know, I'm like, oh, that was beautiful. It's got to go. It's got to go. It's got to go. <laughs> All these scenes uh, and and plotting does avoid that for me. So okay, now do you? edit as you write or do you write really no. quickly and then go back yes. in the editing to I process? write dirty first drafts that no one is allowed to see ever. <laughs> I just need to get it down so I will I will write my first draft and I will when I'm writing that I'll be doing a minimum of probably 4,000 words a day but aiming for like six so that I wow. can get a horribly grubby first draft done in two weeks um after that it's normally another two drafts before I let anyone anywhere near it to see it a <laughs> uh, critique on it and then it's acting on that wow so how did you learn to write so I I'd always been trying to write I've been trying to write children's stories I've been writing songs when I was a teenager writing limericks those kind of things and I've tried novels a few times um, and I'd get to sort of 5,000 words, 10,000 words, and it would always just kind of peter out into, <laughs> into nothing. Um, and then I had the idea for amendments, and I loved the idea so much. Um, I was like, I want, I want to do this. I want to write this novel. I want it complete. I want it good. So I then signed up for um, an online writing course. It was with the Writers Workshop, they were called then. I think they're called Jericho Writers now. But it was a very intense, every week you're submitting, you're getting feedback, you're giving feedback to the others. I think that was a 12-week course. And then I just sort of 
got did every every course I could find <laughs> um sort of you know the free ones that you can find on things like Coursera and that kind of thing just yeah trying to get as much in it as possible and then writing uh, so I've got you know many books some first draft some second that have not made the cut of publishing but I I don't believe that every book is for publishing some are for learning ah um, <laughs> and and I have a yeah a, a couple of books that that were learning books like after amendments that I spent years on sort of working through with these groups and doing little and didn't exactly I then spent a lot of time just writing just getting out stories getting to the end of stories going is this worth a second draft no is this worth a second draft yes and then is it worth a third draft no and then it wasn't until I got to Walter that I'm like okay I like this one again I like this concept let's go go with this again um yeah. Now, that was so. When when did um, amendments? When was it published? Two thousand and fifteen. Two thousand fifteen. And when did you finish writing it? Did it take a while to get to find a publisher? Um. So I self-published that one. So ah. I have. I I am very much a hybrid publisher. So I have self-published books. I have books with different publishers as well. So that one I was living in Malaysia at the time. Um, and so given that I was living there and it was also the time of send off manuscripts and things like that, self-publishing seemed like the most viable option. It did actually go to acquisitions with a big publishing house. They, um, they found it online, you know, people are like, oh, you'll never find things like that. They, they do, they do. Um, but yeah, that one remained self-published. Um, and it's actually only recently that I've made the decision, um, to to go with some traditional publishers sort of finding the ones that work for me and obviously writing different genres um because sometimes publishers can be like oh this is your lane you stick in it yes yes and yeah. so i needed to be in a position where i could go look i'm i'm going to write greek mythology and i'm going to write rom-coms and occasionally <laughs> i might throw in something completely random there and that and i'm going to write quite a lot like i'm not going to put out one book a year i'm going to put out a lot more than one book or two books a year <laughs> so. now i would think publishers would be thrilled by that by the fact that you're putting out so many books per year uh yeah i think it I had a lovely meeting with one of my editors the other week and, and she was just like, it is quite nice. I know I'm just going to get your draft. I know it's going to be in. I know there's going to be no fuss <laughs> like, because I have too much to get on with, with the next ones. You know, it's yeah. 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 And the thing is, once you go down that rabbit hole of wanting to make it perfect, it can't be. You will always find something. You will always find something. And I know with amendments, like it took years for me to finally let it go. And even now, I want to go back. There are things that would change. I would love to have because I love the concept. I'd love to go back and rework that book. And I will at some point. Um, well, that's, that's a question that I often ask is how do you know when it's good enough? I think, you know, when the story is right, like I know when I haven't got that niggle and like you read something and, and if it's a little bit grating, well, then if it's a little bit grating, it's wrong isn't mm, it? Mm-hmm. Like you go back and change that. But if it's wording, you know, if it's like, oh, this sentence, I'm spending four hours on this this <laughs> paragraph. It's like, there's, there's no point. There's no point. I think it's trust, trust your own instincts. Like, yeah, 
trust when you know that you're reading through it and and you're enjoying it you're enjoying reading through it or listening to it and you're getting taken away in the story then it's good to go you're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Hannah Lynn, author of Athena's Child and dozens of other books. Now, Athena's Child, I'm guessing, just came out in the U.S. Is that correct? Yes. 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 So it, it has recently hit the bookshops, uh, which is very exciting in the U.S. and the U.K., so that has been brilliant to see. And are there other, um, other of your books that have been published in the U.S.? So they, I have um, two more books, um, Greek mythology books coming out um, over the next eight months before there is a brand new release of my um, latest Greek mythology, which is Daughters of Olympus. And that will be out in paperbacks first, um, the first time it's been released because Athena's Child is a re-release from when we did it. Right. In the UK. Has it been published yes. in other countries as well? Um, it's been great for the translations, actually. Um, I look into my bookshelf to see what I know. We've got Italy has been spectacular for us, which has been amazing. Um, also had Portugal, Spain, Russia. I look at my husband's head and he's going to say <laughs> more than me. Um, I, know that there are, that, that, I think there's about six or seven um, translations, wow. which is wow. lovely. I've, um, but it doesn't mean I have lots of copies of my books in different languages. <laughs> my bookshelf is full of them and they all look very pretty, uh, but I can't read them. Of course not. Of course not. So my the other received large watch. <laughs> the other two books in this series so far are Spartan's Sorrow. What's that story? So that's a retelling of Clytemnestra. Um, so the queen in Mycenae, Agamemnon's wife, mm. um, who is a famously brutal character. And I, again, wanted to put a different perspective um, on that because it's been yeah, very much painting her as the victim. And while she hasn't always been an ideal character, I do think that there is some, yeah, some justification to her actions very much. <laughs> and queens of... The Themyscira. Themyscira, okay. Themyscira. Queens of Themyscira. Sorry, Themyscira. I'm not going to say my name, my own book there. <laughs> Queens of Themyscira. And what's that story? So that is about the Amazon queens. Um, I have become very just in love, really. I'm completely obsessed <laughs> with the Amazons. So that is Hippolyta and Penthesilea told from dual perspectives um, of these two warrior queens. So th those are are those Greek myths also or yes yes okay um that one's very well that one's very interesting because obviously they they are not technically Greek um although Hippolyta was uh, a queen in Athens for a while um but there are no complete stories of them they've only ever appeared in other bits of other stories oh. um, and so this one I had to build like a chronological time. Um, for everything to make sense and sort of patchwork it together and sort of fill in the blanks, which was um, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Wow. So when you're writing these, do you start with like reading everything you can find about these characters? Yes. Yeah. I'm nodding, but that doesn't help on a podcast, does it? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes absolutely. Yeah. Um, and is there a, a lot 
is there a lot written? Are there have there been retellings of these stories throughout the centuries? So uh, Clytemnestra has definitely had had a fair share of her tales retold um, and become very popular um, as well. I think because she's got so much depth to her, so much happens to her. You know, there's so much emotion in her story; it's not really a surprise. In terms of the Amazons, not really. Um, but there's a lot of great uh, factual information. I mean, one of the things I used the most was this book, The Amazons by Adrian Mayer, where um, it's nonfiction and she's just piecing together all the evidence that we've got of these warrior women. And it's just absolutely fascinating. Oh, oh that's interesting. Yeah. And why do you think these retellings of Greek myths have, have become so popular in like the last five years I think they're amazing they're amazing stories obviously that's why they've stood, stood the time like in terms of stories and creatures and fantasies that they are wonderful but we always get one perspective and I think people now more than ever are wanting different perspectives you know we previously were in a time where you believe what you are faced with you know you are given this fact and you are told it is true and therefore you know you believe that we're not in that world anymore now we're now in a situation where we we can question things where we have access to all this information um and uh, people want different perspectives and that comes from you know these people they've had big up of heroes these whole lines and the villains well you know nobody's a villain in their own story what's <laughs> what's justified those actions and i think people want to know that and it does seem like a lot of the, the books that have really um, been very popular in this genre are telling the stories from a more female perspective as, I don't, a, as opposed to, you know, all the well, that's male centric. Exactly. <laughs> of, everything, of, has, yeah. everything has been so male centric yeah. previously in right. these stories. Right. And there are so many characters that, you know, haven't had their voices heard. And, and so many of the ones that haven't had them are women. You yes. know, so if you're interested in this and you want a different perspective, you just just taking a well-known story as a women's perspective and you've got a whole different viewpoint on things. And it's so much fun. The. One thing that I found interesting in Athena's Child was part of it is being told from the perspective of Perseus, who is yes. a man. Mm -hmm. But you give that a different spin as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how? Yeah. So it was really important to me that I, I wasn't going into this, you know, the women are great. The men and heroes are the monsters of this because he kills her. He's therefore the monster. I didn't want that. You know, that's not there are nuances to every relationship. Um, and Theseus, you know, the, the reason he went off for Medusa in the first place was to try and protect his mother from from this fate. And so, you know, he's obviously he's a bit of a mummy's boy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> He needs the gods help so many times on the journey. You know, he's not a. A natural hero shall we say despite his father like I think he's a he's a reluctant one and I wanted to have that sort of relationship um develop between them so you know it's possible to have a situation where no one's the good guy and no one's the bad guy mm. it's just a bit tragic <laughs> yeah isn't there a song there are no good guys there are no bad guys there's only you and me and we just disagree <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that but I love it 
<laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that was from back in the 70s. <laughs> so um, would you like to read a little bit from Athena's Child for us? Can you Absolutely. do that? Yeah. Yes, I would love to. Now, um, if I can read from the beginning, that would be lovely. All right. You're all right with that? Sure. So it's for those whose truth has been lost. May it one day be found. Some believe that monsters are born monsters, that some creatures arrive on this earth with a darkness so all-consuming in their heart that no mere mortal's love could ever hope to tame it. These souls, they believe, cannot achieve redemption and do not deserve it. They are beasts, intent on causing chaos for all who cross their paths. They are vengeful and hate-filled, deserving of nothing except our contempt. Perhaps it is true. Perhaps all monsters are born. And then again, perhaps it is just a way of hiding the darkness we all carry within us. A darkness we force ourselves to keep hidden for the world, for we can barely imagine what terrible misdoings would occur if we were to let that darkness grow. Because the truth that we all know is this. Darkness grows. It would be easier if it did not. This story, in many ways, would be easier if the darkness had been more born in her that way. But it was not. She was not. Medusa grew from monsters. She was not born of them. Chapter One. The three figures stood in the doorway, watching the flurries of dust bloom in the air. The silence that surrounded them was not an easy silence. It was a silence burdened with contemplation of an unspoken question to which each one of them knew the answer, but none would be the first to say. The long, the green of spring had been lost to the heat of summer, and the smell of overripe fruit sweetened the air around them. Shriveled berries heated the ground, made glorious feasts for the insects that sowed over and dirt. Some of sense. The evening air was still heavy with the day's humidity. The family stood watching the horse and rider disappear over the horizon. Sweat weaved its way down some backs. We should consider it, the mother, Aretophilia, said. It was always going to be she who first to speak. Her words were blunt and void of emotion, as if the matter were nothing more than a transaction, a sale at the market, which, of course, it was. To pretend it was more than that would be nothing short of foolish. We should not. We will not. Fella's eyes met his wife for the first time since their visitor's departure. We can't keep delaying. We are fortunate. This is a good match. On what evidence do you make this claim? Fella's voice hardened. I do have some experience in these matters, Aretophilia replied. The pair looked at the girl between them. Go inside, Aretophilia said to her firstborn. Find your sisters. Make sure they have not made a mess of your clothes. And there'll be no need to worry about cooking tonight. We have more than enough from our guests to make do. Medusa's eyes moved from the horizon. With a simple, elegant nod to her mother, she turned to go. But take that thing off first. Her father motioned to the jewels wrapped around her neck. Medusa raised her hand and touched the necklace. Without so much as a word, she slipped the glimmering string of gemstones over her head and handed it to her father before disappearing inside. 
The man on the horse had been the third visitor they'd received in a month and the wealthiest by far. He had brought with him baskets of fig, wine, olives, meat and jewellery. The necklace was embedded with gold and more garnet than any of them had seen in their lifetime. Selling it would earn more than their farm would make in three years. Salif glanced down at the object and shuddered. shuddered. Aretophilia, he said, taking his wife's hand in his. What do we do? Do you believe what you say? That this is a good match? She nodded slowly. I do. He was courteous. He has a good name and intelligence. Not all have been blessed in such a way. Intelligence means shrewdness, cunning. That Salas counted her. He is double my age and then some. What interest could a man of that age find in a 13-year-old girl? His wife's silence provided all the answers he feared. Around them, cicadas and th song thrushes filled the silence until, finally releasing the air she held in her lungs, Aretophalia sighed. This may not be the punishment you believe it to be, Thalus. Many are lucky. I was lucky. My kin were lucky. You cannot hold back all our girls because of your sister's fate. I do not. Only Medusa. Rubbing the bridge of his nose, Thalus groaned. Oh, to be burdened with daughters. I would have drowned them at birth had I known the torment it would cause me. Aretaphila twisted sharply. You would not, she said tersely. Thalus laughed sadly. Of course I would not. I could not have sent her to the riverbed now any more than I can send her to the wolves. That uh, riverbed then any more than I can send her to the wolves now. That is my folly. You say you were lucky in this marriage? A better husband would not be tormented by such a trivial manner. Aretophilia rested her hand on her, upon her husband's arms. This is not a trivial matter. And your concern shows your heart, but they are not all wolves, Thalys. They are not all wolves. Thalys moved towards the road where the wind had already erased the hoof prints in the sand. You are wrong, my love. I wish it were not so, but you are. They lick their lips when they see her. These are not men, they are snakes, serpents trying to find the freshest eggs, and when they do find them, they crack them open, devour their insides, and leave them nothing more than hollow shells. I feel it in my bones, in every breath, every time my eyes fall upon her. Mertis was a full year older than Medusa, with only half her beauty. My sister's fate will not become my daughter's. Then what, Thalys? What would you have us do? <laughs> and there begins the story of Medusa. Now, is is this Myrtis, which would have been her aunt, is that part of the myth, or is this something that you? No, okay. no, that is that is a bit of a meme. <laughs> did did um, how about the names of her parents? Is that something that was part of the story? Um, no, there are various names for various. Ah, names. okay. So that was a me. That was a me decision <laughs> on those. The sisters, however, um, are her sisters' names. Right, and I, and the story that you tell about how they also became monsters is that part of the. So um, kind of standard in one myth? of the versions. It's the <laughs> yes, it's it's a supporting of her, but 
but these stories are so sort of fragmented and the, the piece is so small it's like having to build the situations around them if that makes sense mm -hmm. you know you've got a brief snippet and then you're going to turn this into a whole world oh, okay what where like is the story of medusa in any of the like the iliad the odyssey or is is she in any of those kind of big I things <laughs> don't believe she is i think it's on it's um ovid but that's terrible of me not to know <laughs> isn't it Oh well, I'm not that familiar with <laughs> like the ancient Greek authors and, um, you know, I've heard uh, Homer, obviously I've heard of him, but, but, and it, but I don't know that much about who wrote what. And yet we all know all the, we all know the basis of all no. the stories, don't we? I know. It wasn't until I started delving into this, it was like, oh, you've got these different, right? Like Homer, yes. And then you're like, oh, hold on. <laughs> what about these long list of other stories? So, uh, yes, now my bookshelves are, are full of, uh, yeah. <laughs> full of And of stories. course, sometimes I wonder, you know, they were obviously writing in Greek, right? Yes. And ancient Greek. Now, Greek is still a living language, but languages change. And so are the translations really what they were writing? Well, I think it's so interesting, isn't it? Because you get so many different variations in the translations. And even now, people are still translating the original and interpreting how things are said differently. And, uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Just, you know, people coming at it from their, quite often patriarchal, uh, yes, view yes, on it. Yes. And so this is how they are telling it. And now you're getting you know, far more nuanced uh, translation. So actually, oh, we could interpret it this way. Oh, we could interpret it that way. And, you know. I know. We don't think I about think it. Really but even, you know, our language changes. Words mean, there are words that don't mean the same thing now as they did when I was a child. Oh, and absolutely. So how do, you know, that's a whole art in itself. That Have you, have you ever wanted to be able to do that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, no, I I always just grow up and say languages was not my skill. Actually, I don't think I put enough emphasis to learn languages now. I look at it differently. Um, yeah. Because I do believe that, you know, from traveling and things, I, I, I could have picked up more. But I believe, you know, when I grew up, it was a different time. It was like, you were good at this and you were good at this and you were good at this. And there wasn't that kind of flexibility you know you had those all-rounders who could do everything but there wasn't that sort of growth mindset that there is nowadays which is you know well I, I wanted to do writing I loved writing um but I was a maths and science girl so I I couldn't bridge that you know how does that work that doesn't work you know, so you know you're a scientist it's amazing to me how many of our guests over the years writers of all kinds have been doctors and other types of scientists and they have this other side you know that and um yeah you're right we don't have to be just one thing do we no, <laughs> no. and actually that's kind of a sort of important theme that i've got in queens of themiscira with ah. the the amazon warriors because it's like oh they're warriors they're they're strong they're formidable it's like but you can be physically strong and you can be a good leader, but you can still have these inner turmoil and these inner battles and you can still be victims in other ways. Um, oh. And I really wanted to get that 
across, particularly with one of the queens with Hippolyta, and it's like she strong women still fall victim to situations, you know, just because you know this happened to her and she made that decision, that doesn't stop her being a strong and powerful woman. Um, and so that was really important of me to sort of get that across in that. Now story. it's interesting because there's two ways of looking at that as and you and you really looked at it both ways in just that brief description. One is that strong women can still be victims and the other is victims can still be strong. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely that. And I don't know, you, you it's such tick box. Everything's so tick box. She was this, she was that. And I think that's why mythology stories are so popular at the minute because we have been given tick boxes of these people and there's so much more to their stories that like you say we all know the stories of the greek myths we all know theseus and the minotaur um you know we all know medusa but actually the in the in-depth the sort of variations and the of these people is just so broad there's so much scope for development within there um, that you know, it's any writer's feast, really. Like, All right. So you problem. mentioned the Minotaur, and I just heard this really dumb joke, which is: <laughs> imagine if your father was the Minotaur and your mother was a mermaid, and you got the human halves of both, and now you're just a regular guy. That would be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I think I'd be relieved, actually. Like, at least I got that part of Dad's joke, you know. <laughs> the interesting thing about these, the Greek tales, is they talk about people being, you know, half gods, you know, that their father was a god, as if it's like the mm -hmm. most normal thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> or you know these or the minotaur okay. these you know half human yeah. creatures and um it does kind of make you wonder what was going on back then that people could accept this that's one of the that's one of those wonderful things about writing and worlds and stories isn't it is the things that you get so immersed in and you believe whilst you're in that in a book mm, mm, it's yes. it's just wonderful like you know just reality has gone and you're so content in this world of so chaos so so perseus was um kind of exiled in a way he and his mother as an infant because of some yes. omen that he was that he would kill his father or his um grandfather his grandfather, his grandfather. grandfather. and did he end up doing that yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not in my book I left before. Right, then, right. Yeah, you know. Gotta love these oracles, haven't you? Yep, yep. And how how did he do that? Did he know that's what he was doing or No. Ah. No, it wasn't. It was a it was a comeback and not know it was the grandfather. Uh, yes, Sarah. Yeah. So yeah, poor Perseus. Yeah. Gotta love him. I do like Perseus, much more than Theseus. Oh <laughs> not a Theseus fan at all. <laughs> And um, his mother, does she – see, your story ends at a certain point, 
It does. Are you yes. writing the? And are you going to go forward with anything about her mother, his mother, or or if not, Ooh. just you can just share what happens to her with Ooh. us now. Oh, I had not. Um, <laughs> no, I've not in any way considered doing that. But now you said it to me. Um, I am quite tempted to do that. So. No, obviously we know from the story, Anna, and not to ruin it for anybody, but yes, Theseus does um, kill Medusa. Yeah. Um, and, pardon? Oh, Perseus, Perseus. I said Theseus, yes. sorry. Yeah. Uh, Perseus uh, <laughs> uh, does kill and does go back. In terms of what happens to Danae afterwards, I am not 100% sure because her story... Of the bit that's so well known and the bit was so relevant in, with me is of course how she was impregnated how she was cast um away um but i do believe she was forced to marry king polydectes which obviously was not what she wanted right to do at all right. unfortunately um yes yeah so i'm now i'm now a little bit like yeah there's there's probably I'm, more to this story calling, Monica, I've, got, I've got a little bit of tapping to do on my computer you're listening to writers voices and our guest today is hannah lynn author of athena's child well how do you decide which characters you're going to to retell so it's I, I was actually looking through some notebooks. I'm, I'm moving into a garden office this week, which is amazing. Oh, wow. Um, and I found a notebook. I'm like, oh, I don't think I need this one. And then I flicked through it, and it's like, write her story under <laughs> this, this name. Um, and I think whenever whenever you're looking through the mist and, and you know, you're researching for the one and writing, so many other people come up as well like there are so many interesting characters that it's like Do you know what maybe i'll uh <laughs> give this one a go and then well, sort of once i've got an idea of who i want to do it's like okay is there enough to develop a whole story mm. out of her is there a way to show more than one side i mean medea is one of the ones that i know has been done recently um and, and i do need to read the the recent release on her but i'm just like what she did was really despicable yeah. Can I make compassion for her? Can I make a reader feel compassion for her and make her actions justifiable without altering the story so that she didn't actually do that despicable thing, uh, which was which was and, as bad as and I yeah. didn't. And so I was just like, I don't know if I want to do that. So with her, I'm like, you know, I'm going to take a rain check until I can maybe figure out a way of finding the redemption because I I want my characters to be rounded I want them to have done terrible things but justifiably you know or gone through you know or because they had and, no choice yeah because that exactly yeah so yeah it's a case of going through them and seeing what I can find that that works to sort of put together so can you tell us or maybe you already did who the fourth book is about I did not. The fourth book, Daughters of Olympus, is about Demeter and Persephone. Ah. So it's the mother-daughter relationship uh, that I got my proof copies through today, <laughs> and they are just beautiful. 
Um, and I loved it. I loved it. Um, for me, I'm a mum with one daughter as well. So with Demeter's journey becoming, you know, very overly protective and sort of, I'm like, yeah, I get that. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I'm really loving this publishers that I'm working with. You know, absolutely brilliant. I love the editorial team. They're they're wonderful, and I've really enjoyed this. But it's also been a learning spirit experiencing for me, and I'm about constantly learning, constantly learning about you know this. Um, what's the word I've want? I've forgotten the word. Um, industry. Mm. There we go. About this industry that that I'm working in and on both sides of it. And I I want that. I want a wide view. I want to know how things how things are going. I mean, we contacted this publisher. We liked what this publisher was and, doing. And the publisher is? So it's Sourcebooks. Sourcebooks, It's yes. Sourcebooks, Lambert. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we liked them. We liked them as in, with their ethos. Um, you know, we have meetings with them. And it's like, you know, we weren't going into this. I say we because I do a lot with my husband. Um, I, I assumed that, way. yeah, because he's right yes. off camera, so, right? <laughs> <laughs> he is working away. Um, so I always say we, and I realize that I sound a little bit strange sometimes, <laughs> so I have to get that in. Um, so, yeah, we knew what we wanted going into publishing. So it was very important for us. We weren't just going to take, uh, here's a deal, take it. Um, have you ever so, thought of starting your own publishing company? I mean, you in a way you have because of the self-publishing, but but for other writers is that um i wouldn't say it's never crossed our mind <laughs> that is more of my husband's ilk um the the reason i am able to put out so many books and do the self publishing as well as deal with the translations is because he helps with that you know when you get a translation you have records you need to show that you're living here and this that and the other and that kind of thing you know emails to send letters to send off I am very grateful that he does that and I write stories ah. <laughs> so because I do get the how do you do it it's like well it's actually it's a team effort yes um, and I know lots of people that are rather jealous of that situation and would like I'm sure <laughs> would like one of those. I'm sure yeah because he's taking yeah, care of the business side and yeah. allowing you to focus on the creative the side. Creative and right. yeah. 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 And it's an absolute, like, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't be able to to do it the way I'm doing it without him. I mean, we're fully aware of that, which is why it's always a wee when we're talking about someone's knocking on the door. Now. <laughs> um, it's all here. It's all good. <laughs> so what advice would you give to somebody who wants to be a full-time author? Um, so for starters, you, you can't give up on it. So if this is what you want, don't expect it to come immediately. You know, I I wrote my first book, what did I say? I published, self-published my first book in 2015. And then two years ago, 2011, went full-time. So actually that's, 2021. that's not bad going. 2021. 2021, yeah. that's it. <laughs> well, I got a bit confused there, didn't I, with, uh, with, with dates. Um, so actually, from when I started writing amendments, another two years in advance of that, we're actually looking at like eight, nine years that it, it took me. Um, if it's what you want, you just don't have expectations. Don't think that this book is going to be mm. the next big thing, because I've had so many moments where I'm like, this is it. This is it. This is it. No, it's not. No, it's not. And then you go again and you're like, oh, is this where I go? Oh, no, no. Um, probably what happened to JK it, Rowling is not going to happen to you in other words and you know, don't, <laughs> don't sort of hope put, place all your eggs in that basket right right like you know if your first book doesn't do as well as you think it 
it's going to, it, as you wanted it to, as you thought it was going to, then you write the next one. Yes. And if the second one doesn't do as well as you thought, you, you write the third one. Actually, we were on holiday and my, my daughter wrote her first book. She's, How old is she? She's nearly nine. Oh. She's nearly nine. <laughs> um, we were on a canal boat. She decided she wanted to write a story. And um, it's nearly 4,000 words on the first draft so far, which I think for a not yet nine-year-old is not bad going at all. Not bad at all. So, yeah. Um, and she's like, and I'm gonna publish it, and it's gonna. I'm like, but what do you do if it's not, if it doesn't sell well? She's like, write the next one. I'm like, and if that one doesn't sell well, write the next one. Like she, she knows, she knows that you sit there. And so I think it's, it's know that it's completely possible, but you just can't give up on and it. And that's really, if you give up on it, you're never gonna get there. And that really is the advantage in a way of self-publishing, the ability to be able to self-publish and get it out in the market, see what there is, you know, see what kind of response you get. Because I, I have known a number of authors who um, got publishing contracts with their first book. Now, they may have written books that are in the drawer, but they, they got yeah. early publishing contracts. The books did not sell well. It made it very difficult for them to build a career as a writer if the first book did not sell well, if you're with a publisher and got an advance, and if it didn't pay back the advance. And... So in a way, you're almost better off not getting a deal right out of the gate. Yeah, I think the publishing world has, has changed and is constantly changing. It's 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 so interesting. The deals that are out there now, you know, getting print only deals and maintaining ebook rights, you know, whether you're keeping your foreign language rights, all these things. There's so much out there. Um, I think the stigma of self-publishing um you know there was it's like oh it's a self-published book and I'm talking about, there are some books out there that you know people are just like I've written a book I'm going to put it out there without thinking about you know editing and yes those kind of things yeah. and, and that is frustrating but there are also thousands of thousands of phenomenal authors who are self-publishing and self-publishing wonderful books turning down traditional deals left right and center because that is the way that they want to do it for them yeah. and I think that's important to remember now is is what is going to work for you traditional deals can be fabulous you know they can be fabulous self-publishing can be fabulous yeah. you know there is no wrong answer but if you're wanting to do this full time the only thing that's wrong is just not writing and not keep going with it right um, and also learn like the, the constant learning and evolving, I think, is is so important. You can learn so much from everyone you're talking to in the book industry. Uh, and I love that. Now, when you were self-publishing, did you have any editing help or were you, was it just? Oh, no, you? absolutely. Okay. okay. Oh, no, I, I, <laughs> I did say messy first draft, right? Yes. And then better second, better third. But no, yeah, I am. Um, a good editor is is so important. And I would never put a book out without editors, proofreaders. Yeah, because yeah, that is a mistake a I think that some people who self-publish make is they think they don't need yeah. an editor. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, and it's, it's difficult because it is a financial outlay yourself. Yes, exactly. You know, it, exactly. That is. And so in that sense, for some people, that's not an option. And going for the traditional route is... Makes a lot more sense. the only viable yeah. way. And there it. are some um, great, new um independent publishers out yeah. there 
there's yeah absolutely yeah. I think publishers are seeing how things are changing and, and they're jumping on board with it you know for my rom-coms um I think I'm publishing four books a year with them um as well as and then myself published on top of it but <laughs> that just but a, it blows I, my mind that you're publishing like half a dozen books a year yeah the rest <laughs> That's... I think I'm aiming for 10. <laughs> 10? You're aiming um, for 10? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, but they're all in different stages, and I've got a great team, and the team makes a massive, massive difference. But when I was first, you know, when after I'd won the award for Walter and I was sitting down with my agent, she's like, you know, they'll want you to do one book a year. I'm not going to write one book a year. <laughs> no. Like, I've got all these stories that... <laughs> That means the most I'm ever going to get written is, you know, have money. Oh, I know. I want more than that. Oh, you know, we are about out of time. And I had a quote that, because we always close with a quote, and I just lost it. it. Let me see if I can find it again. It it went, an ad popped up on the where I was. Oh. Um, where I was and then it, and then it went away. Okay. I found it. So this is from Donatella Versace. And she said in mythology, the Medusa can petrify people with a look, which is a good thing, I think. <laughs> but the Medusa is a unique symbol, something strong. It's about going all the way. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I think that's good. I think that needs to be printed somewhere for me. I think so, too. Absolutely. I think so, too. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Hannah. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely lovely. It's been really wonderful and to chat Athena's to Child was so fun to read, but I, I admit that I'm kind of a fan of the Greek mythology retelling from a feminine perspective. And so this was right up my alley. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, thank you, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices.